Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and the Forgotten Victims. Now, before I get into this episode, which is arguably the most explosive yet, and trust me, I'm still in shock and outraged, I'm going to give the usual health warning. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators, and their behaviour at real crime scenes. There are going to be some graphic details throughout. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Now, in the last episode of The Forgotten Victims, episode 31, I talked about the investigation and key investigative decisions made by police leaders and the police and the media culture. Now, as I said, my curiosity was piqued early on about former Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield and former Detective Superintendent Dick Holland in terms of their background and their behaviour, particularly given the decisions that they made throughout this high-profile investigation. You see, it's not just about the decisions and their behaviour. It's also much more about the ongoing interviews that I've heard with police personnel, even the more recent ones, where I still hear the same party line being towed. Things being said like, he was a cunning killer, that they literally didn't know where he would strike next, that it was such a difficult investigation and luck went against them in this, the largest manhunt in history. Well, listen to DC Andy Lapchu here talking in 2016. It was very tricky. This monster used to choose his victims at random by driving around West Yorkshire, Greater Manchester, saw a prospected victim and then did the deed. There was no rhyme nor reason to it. But he did have a distinctive method, John DeMail. He did, yes. A tremendously big hammer assault to the head with a knife attack to the body, basically. The populace and the police were all very concerned about these murders. Now, as I've already said, over time, this has become the dominant narrative because there has not been another one or, in fact, another way of challenging what really went on, particularly when all the associated documents and reviews were buried and those who were involved in the case controlled the narrative. Now, in my experience, if you keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, and you stick together, then of course, that becomes the narrative, particularly from authority figures. And then when you work with journalists and others who are writing the books and producing the documentaries on the subject, and you're asked to participate, well, your narrative is further amplified. And who's going to challenge it in this case? I've already highlighted that women did protest throughout the investigation and there were Reclaim the Night marches. In fact, many women knew that there was a problem, including the Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. And I dare say there were many within the police service too who felt the same way but were unable to do anything. But it was after Jacqueline Hill's murder that the public were really outraged and incensed. Many wanted Chief Constable Gregory removed and for Scotland Yard to take over. In fact, at this time, even the West Yorkshire Police Authority demanded a change of direction in the investigation. Now, you'll recall Chief Constable Gregory refused. 
And he said that Commander Neville from New Scotland Yard had done a health check on the investigation and that he was happy with everything. And you'll recall that I said that Chief Constable Gregory was out of touch and tone deaf, but he was also dismissive of Jacqueline Hill's mother, who made a heartfelt appeal to the nation and the media. But Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and other MPs had had enough, and Lord Byford was sent in. He visited the incident room and found the team, along with the lead detective Al Finley, to be exhausted. And it was at this point that Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hobson took over from Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield, and he was appointed as Acting Assistant Chief Constable. So there was a change in leadership of sorts, and reporters put it to Acting Assistant Chief Constable Jim Hobson that the West Yorkshire Police may have overlooked the killer, and they said that perhaps West Yorkshire Police may already have interviewed him and that he may well be in the system. Now, interestingly, acting ACC Jim Hobson was resistant to that. Furthermore, when one of the linguistic experts, Jim Windsor, claimed that the tape was a hoax, Jim Hobson said that he was 99% certain that the tape was genuine. And Jim Hobson would not budge. Now, this level of cognitive dissonance was and is alarming. And at this point, Lord Byford put together the advisory group, who I told you about before, which consisted of four senior officers from different police forces who'd had no previous connection to the investigation. And together with a forensic scientist, they were asked to review the case and then to report back to the chief constable. Well, it might seem that I'm going over a few details that I've already covered, but there's some other nuanced detail, the granular detail and context that I want to share with you. It was within one month of their review that the advisory group concluded that the killer doesn't necessarily originate from the northeast of England and that the killer most likely lived and or worked in the Bradford area. And I want to reiterate that timeline. They opined that within one month. Now, granted, they had more information available at this stage, but I also opined this in episode four, just from analysing the offences, the modus operandi and the geography alone. And that's not all the advisory group found. Within a couple of weeks, it became apparent that decision-making about the investigation had been ad hoc. Now, in other words, nothing was written down about record of the meetings or the decisions taken at those meetings. And in fact, the advisory group opined that no one person seemed to be in charge. The best that Detective Chief Superintendent John DeMarle could offer up was that there was, and I quote, a lot of togetherness. That's such an interesting word, isn't it? Togetherness. Now, I'm not entirely sure what he meant by that, but what's clear to me is that he wasn't naming names. The togetherness implies that it was everyone making joint decisions. Well, that's interesting because it appears to be in conflict with things he's said since, i.e. that ACC Oldfield made decisions about the photo fits and to prioritise the tapes and the handwriting. Well, perhaps he didn't wish to name George Oldfield at the time or single out any senior officer in particular. That would be akin to Turkey's voting for Christmas. But that's not all they found. Crucial recommendations made by Commander Jim Neville from Scotland Yard made a year before were not followed up, 
And so it was seen there was no clean bill of health or green light given to the investigation, as Chief Constable Gregory had previously claimed. And what's more, they discovered that Detective Chief Superintendent DeMar's 1978 review had also been ignored. Unbelievable. Remember that I talked about John DeMar's important review linking other offences in an earlier episode. And also what I found out about John DeMarle is that he went on to become Assistant Chief Constable in West Yorkshire Police. And so his continued loyalty to West Yorkshire Police is apparent years later from his 2016 interview on the BBC podcast, The Reunion. I'm just jumping in here, interrupting myself, because I wanted to share with you, lovely lot, my new project called The First Wife, John Meehan's Reign of Terror, which is a new podcast I executive produced on Audible. Building on the success of the hit podcast Dirty John, which was created by Wondery and the Los Angeles Times in 2017, the First Wife podcast is a reinvestigation into John Meehan's behaviour by Tonya Bells, his first wife of 10 years. Join us as we uncover new insights into John Meehan's life and never before release recordings of John Meehan long-held secrets from his former friends and acquaintances, as well as accounts from colleagues and close family members. Now accompanying each episode of The First Wife are bonus instalments hosted by me, Laura Richards, as I take a deeper dive with Tonya Bells into the episode's events and the long-awaited psychological autopsy into the mind of John Meehan. New information and accounts from the people who knew John best bring us closer to the truth, answering crucial questions. Why did John make the choices that he did? What was the impetus of his coercively controlling behaviour? And ultimately, was John Meehan a psychopath? Listen to all eight episodes exclusively on Audible or use their 30-day free trial. Here's the trailer. A marriage that was supposed to last forever. And she said, oh, is this his sister? And I said, no, this is his wife. And she said, I slept with John last night. You enjoy your time left on this earth, okay? Before the world knew about Dirty John, there was Tanya Meehan's 10-year nightmare. John is a stalker. John is a terrorist. He said, my golden life is to slay as many women as I possibly can. A family in danger. He said, Tanya, he might take hostages, and I want you to hide until we find him. And I'm thinking, boy, am I going to have to crush John Meehan's skull with this hatchet? Tanya reinvestigates her past with those who knew John best. I said, you left me, you stole drugs, and you killed your brother. I know everything. With shocking new claims... Tanya realizes this may never be over. I'm pretty certain I'm your older half-brother. It hurts so bad, and in a way, it makes me understand that I never had anything. I never had it. This is The First Wife, John Meehan's Reign of Terror, only on Audible. Now, like I said in episode number four, and I'll say it again, the wrong decisions were made at every turn. Literally every turn. 
I understand that human error happens, clerical error happens. We're all human after all. But this seems to be taking it to a whole new level. The decisions that were made snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, literally every single time, but with very serious consequence. Every opportunity the police had, unfortunately, was wasted and missed. And they said continuously that luck went against them. And I've said time and time again, because it is my opinion, that you have to make your own luck in investigations. You create your own luck. I've never seen a case yet that just falls into your lap with a nice pink bow and ribbon on it. It takes legwork, good judgment, experience, leadership, and you have to believe the women who report. You have to believe the victims and take them seriously and investigate and keep an open mind. And let's not forget, experienced detectives at New Scotland Yard advise them not to eliminate suspects on the basis of accent and handwriting and to revisit those who already had been. Then there were two FBI profilers, Robert Resser and John Douglas, who offered assistance, and they opined that the killer and the person on the tape were not one and the same. And then there were the two linguistic experts who were brought in by police to help, Jack Windsor and Stanley Ellis, who also had grave misgivings that the writer and speaker on the tape were the killer. Now, you'll probably recall that they wrote separately to Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield, on September the 21st, 1979, and September the 22nd, 1970, respectively, to make it clear that they thought the letter and tape was from a hoaxer and that they weren't from the killer. And in response, they were told in no uncertain terms to keep their opinion confidential and not reveal what they were advising police. And yet, in spite of all of this, Chief Constable Ronald Gregory took the remarkable decision to launch Project R, a £1 million publicity campaign to catch the killer using the tape and the accent and the handwriting, contrary to all the expert advice against doing so, and in the context that the investigation had already cost more than £5 million since it began. And so the same pattern seems to be on repeat loop. Chief Constable Gregory, Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield and Detective Superintendent Holland ignoring the very experts that they had called in to the detriment of the investigation. Just like they continued to ignore and dismiss the surviving women. And so I really wanted to understand more about those men leading the charge to find this prolific killer. Leadership is so important, as is psychology, behaviour and background. So I'm going to share with you what I discovered. Okay, so here goes. George Oldfield was promoted to Assistant Chief Constable in West Yorkshire Police following his role in a very high-profile case in the north of England. That case was the M62 coach bombing, or massacre, as it's sometimes referred to, which happened on February the 4th, 1974. Now, many of you may not be familiar with this case or know what the M62 is, it is, in fact, a motorway in the north of England. Well, a coach was travelling along the M62 and it was carrying off-duty British Armed Forces personnel and their family members. And it suddenly exploded, killing 12 people, nine of them soldiers and three civilians, and injuring 38 others aboard the vehicle. Now, I do just want to list those who were killed. They deserve to be honoured too. Terence Griffin, age 24. 
Leonard Godden, age 22. Michael Woff, age 22. Leslie Walsh, age 17. James McShane, age 28. Jack Hines, age 19. Stephen Whaley, aged 18. And a family, Clifford Horton, age 23, and his wife, Mrs. Linda Horton, age 23, and their two children, Lee Horton, aged five, and Robert Horton, aged two. How utterly horrific. And it was discovered that a bomb had been intentionally detonated inside the luggage locker of the coach, and given that the target, the bombed coach, was specifically commissioned to carry British Army and RAF, Royal Air Force personnel, on weekend leave, it was believed that the provisional Irish Republican Army, known as the IRA for short, were responsible. And there was a huge amount of political media pressure to catch those responsible. Again, just utterly horrific that so many young men were murdered, along with the Horton family, including two children, just two and five, who were killed instantly as they'd been sitting directly above the bomb. Well, ten days later, after the bombing, 25-year-old Judith Ward was arrested by West Yorkshire police officers in Liverpool city centre. Following extensive interviews by both West Yorkshire Police and detectives from the Metropolitan Police Service, Judith was charged with 15 separate offences consisting of 12 charges of murder relating to the fatalities of the M62 coach bombing, causing an explosion likely to endanger life and property with regards to this particular event, and then two other separate non-fatal IRA attacks at Euston Railway Station and the Latimer National Defence College committed in September 1973 and February 1974 respectively. Judith pleaded not guilty to all the charges. A forensic scientist called Dr. Skuse gave forensic evidence that she had handled explosives and the prosecution surmised that this was conclusive proof as well as confessions from Judith herself that she was the bomber. The jury deliberated for 5 hours and 40 minutes before they reached their verdicts. On November the 4th, 1974, Judith was found guilty of all charges. Some of the sentences were concurrent, and so Judith would have to serve a minimum sentence of 30 years in prison before being eligible for parole. Interestingly, shortly after her conviction, the IRA issued a statement. They said that Judith Ward, and I quote, had nothing to do whatsoever with the M62 coach bombing, the bombing of Euston Station, and the attack on Latimer Military College, those acts were authorised operations carried out by units of the Irish Republican Army. On September the 17th, 1991, the Home Secretary referred Judith's case to the Court of Appeal, with the primary reasons for this referral being the validity of the scientific evidence presented by Dr. Skuse and others at her trial, and that the prosecution had failed to disclose relevant evidence to her defence team, as they'd been legally obliged to do so. Judith's appeal specifically listed 43 items of evidence consisting of or contained in witness statements, notes of interviews and reports, including medical reports, which had not been disclosed at her trial. Her barrister was Michael Mansfield QC. Now, for those of you who don't know who Michael Mansfield QC is, well, he's a very big name in the UK. 
And a quick wiki check will tell you that he was dubbed the King of Human Rights work by the Legal 500 and as a leading silk in civil liberties and human rights, including actions against the police. Now, some of his most notable cases include Lockerbie, Stephen Lawrence, the Birmingham Six, the Bloody Sunday Massacre, the Hillsborough Disaster, and the deaths of Jean-Charles de Menez and Mark Duggan. In May 1992, Michael Mansfield QC illustrated the fundamental flaws in the physical evidence presented at Judas' trial before three Court of Appeal judges, and he also highlighted that there'd been a significant and substantial non-disclosure of evidence and information which has strongly indicated her innocence, and that of the 63 interviews West Yorkshire Police did with Ward before and after her confession, only 34 had been disclosed at trial. So only 34 interviews were disclosed, meaning the court didn't hear about the 29 further interviews. And that's not all. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Now, Dr. Scoose had previously opined that the forensic analysis showed that Judith had handled explosive substances. Well, at the appeal, the court heard differently, that the handling of lacquers and boot polish by an individual would produce the same positive results presented at Judith's trial, despite the fact they hadn't handled or come into contact with explosive substances. Now, this information was known to forensic experts in 1974, but had never been disclosed at Judith's original trial, or despite her protestations of innocence and subsequent developments with regards to other uncovered miscarriages of justice. And so the Court of Appeal ruled unanimously that Judith's case was a grave miscarriage of justice and Judith's conviction was declared unsafe. In May 1992, Judith Ward was released from prison, having served over 17 years of a sentence of life imprisonment. And yes, you did hear that right. 17 years. 
Her wrongful conviction is still noted as one of the worst miscarriages of justice in British legal history. And I want to provide you with some more further context and newest detail about Judith Ward and her case. Judith was in fact mentally ill and she was homeless when arrested by the police. And detectives from the Metropolitan Police Service did interview her and they opined that she had poor knowledge of the intricacies of bomb making, therefore it was unlikely that Judith was the bomber. Additionally, Judith was working for a travelling circus in Chipping Norton in the Cotswolds on the day the bomb went off, and over a dozen witnesses confirmed this fact. Therefore, she couldn't have been in two places at once. But still, that didn't deter the West Yorkshire Police investigative team, nor the senior officer in charge of the investigation. Well, guess who the interviewing officer who questioned Judith Ward multiple times without her solicitor present and the senior officer in charge of the investigation was. It was none other than Detective Chief Superintendent George Oldfield. Judith said that she'd been pressured into confessing. She just wanted police to leave her alone. She tried to take her own life thereafter. So I'm just giving you a moment to let that sink in. You see, we call that a coerced confession. And this is the case that saw former Detective Chief Superintendent George Oldfield promoted to Assistant Chief Constable, Head of Crime in West Yorkshire Police. Interestingly, Dick Holland was also involved in this case, working to George Oldfield. Now, according to Michael Bilton, Dick Holland was in fact George Oldfield's protégé. He described them as West Riding Men, and there was mutual trust and confidence. Now, I can't tell you how deeply troubling this all is. And unfortunately, that's not all. There was another case that I was made aware of in 2006 when I was working at New Scotland Yard profiling serial and serious domestic violence perpetrators and stalkers. At the time, a police officer contacted me and told me I should take a look at this case. And let me tell you what I found. The case he contacted me about was the sexual assault and murder of an 11-year-old girl called Leslie Molseed. On October the 5th, 1975, 11-year-old Leslie Molseed left her home around lunchtime in Rochdale, Manchester, to buy an air freshener and bread from the local shop. Her brother and two sisters and her had a rotor of chores, and it was Leslie's turn. And so with one pound cash and a shopping bag, she left the house. By about 3pm, her parents were worried as she hadn't returned home and they called Rochdale Police. Now, sadly, on October the 8th, 1975, Leslie's body was discovered near Rishworth Moor in West Yorkshire. Leslie was found lying face down in some tall grass. She'd been stabbed 12 times in the upper shoulder and back. Some of the wounds were very deep and one had penetrated her heart. None of her clothing or possessions were disturbed, but the money was missing and semen was found on her clothing and underwear. On December the 21st, 1975, a 23-year-old man called Stefan Kisko was arrested by West Yorkshire Police. He'd come to police notice before due to four young girls reporting to police that he'd exposed himself to them the day before Leslie was sexually assaulted and murdered. The West Yorkshire Police subsequently interviewed Stephen Kisco for a number of days, and on the third day, he confessed to the sexual assault and murder of Leslie Molseed. On Christmas Eve, he was charged with her murder, and the trial began in July 1976. 
Now, it took the jury five hours and 35 minutes of deliberations, but they found Stefan Kisko guilty by a 10 to 2 majority on July the 21st, 1976. He was given a life sentence for Leslie's murder. He was in prison for 17 years and moved from prison to mental health facility as he developed schizophrenia in prison. He was attacked and beaten many times by other prisoners. And the more he professed his innocence, which he always maintained, the more people, including the professionals, said that he was unwell and it was a symptom of his schizophrenia. But Stefan Kisko's mother always maintained her son was innocent. She never gave up on him and continued to profess his innocence to her local MP and to numerous prime ministers, including Margaret Thatcher. In 1984, Stefan Kisko's mother, Charlotte, contacted Justice, the UK human rights organisation, which at the time investigated many miscarriages of justice. Now, there was a long road ahead, but the case was finally referred to the Court of Appeal on February the 17th, 1992, and three judges heard his case. It was determined that Stefan Kisko should have had an appropriate adult with him when he was interviewed. In fact, he'd asked many times for his mother to be present but was refused. Additionally, the police didn't caution him until long after they had decided he was the prime suspect, but indeed he was the only suspect. And the three judges heard that semen was found at the crime scene and it was revealed that Stefan Kisko gave a semen sample when he was arrested. Now, the pathologist who examined Leslie's clothes found traces of sperm, whereas the sample taken from Stefan Kisko contained no sperm. They also learned that the semen sample was taken in front of police and documented at the time. And from this sample, it was discovered that Stefan Kisko had male hypogonadism, which rendered him infertile, contradicting forensic evidence obtained from the crime scene. But those findings were suppressed by the police and the lawyers, and it was never disclosed to the defence team, and so the jury had no knowledge of it. Had it have been submitted into evidence, Stefan Kisko's innocence was demonstrated conclusively through medical and forensic evidence. Furthermore, Stefan Kisko also had an alibi on the day of Leslie's murder. He was seen at his father's grave and also in a local shop, but none of the witnesses were called to give evidence at the trial. In addition, the young girls who alleged that Stefan Kisko had indecently exposed himself to them the day before Leslie's murder, well, they admitted that they'd made it up, as they thought it was funny at the time. They never believed that he'd be arrested, charged or convicted. Lord Chief Justice Lane, one of the judges who heard the case, said this, It has been shown that this man cannot produce sperm. This man cannot have been the person responsible for ejaculating over the girl's knickers and skirt and consequently cannot have been the murderer. And so Stefan Kisko was cleared and Lord Lane ordered his immediate release from custody. Stefan was released but spent more time in a psychiatric hospital, which he eventually left in April 1992. Thereafter, he was a virtual recluse. His mental health had deteriorated and so too did his physical health. He was broken, and sadly he suffered a massive heart attack and died on December the 23rd, 1992. He didn't live long enough to receive the half a million pounds compensation due to him for his wrongful conviction. And tragically, his mother Charlotte, who fought so hard for him, died four months later. They were buried together in Rochdale Cemetery. What an absolute travesty. 
And I was shocked and horrified and saddened by what I discovered in 2006. But I've been looking at this case again because a journalist told me to. And I want to tell you a few more things about this case. So what you also need to know is that Stephen Kisco was questioned for three days straight by West Yorkshire police officers without an appropriate adult present, despite an evaluation at the time showing that Stephen Kisco had a mental and emotional age of just 12. In the three days that Stephen Kisco was interviewed following his arrest, he was told that if he told the police officers what they wanted him to say, that he'd be able to go home to his mum. And so he told them what they wanted to hear, as he just wanted to be with his mum, and he didn't fully understand what was being put to him. He just wanted it to stop, much like Judith Ward and many others. But there's one key part of this jigsaw puzzle that I've learned, and which has taken on new meaning in the context of this reinvestigation, and I'm totally horrified and angry. Guess who the senior investigating officer was in Leslie Molseed's case? And guess who was in charge of interviewing Stefan Kisco? Well, it was none other than Detective Sergeant Dick Holland. I'm still reeling. And there's more. He was even commended for his work by the judge at the first trial. And this is what Dick Holland, the surviving senior officer, would later say following the Court of Appeals ruling. Words cannot express the regret I feel for the family and for Kisco. Now it has turned out he is innocent. But the inquiry was done diligently and honestly, within the terms that were legally and scientifically available. Hmm. Really, though? Really? Is that a truthful statement? Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's break it down. Despite the fact that he, they, had questioned Stefan Kisco for three days straight without an appropriate adult, and despite an evaluation at the time showing that Stefan Kisco had a mental and emotional age of just 12, and the fact he wasn't cautioned either or the fact that I discovered that medical and forensic evidence was intentionally suppressed by the police and key witnesses were not called. And I want to compare this and contrast it with what Michael Bilton said about Detective Superintendent Dick Holland. 
and here's a reminder. My friendship with Dick Holland has lasted since the late 1970s. He was at the heart of the R investigation for four long years, and in many respects, this book is his story and could not have been written without him. We have discussed every aspect of the subject endlessly. I have never known Dick Holland to shirk personal responsibility for the things that went wrong with the R investigation, and I believe him 100% when he says there were honest mistakes. He has a habit of being truthful, even when the truth reflects against himself. I have never ceased to be amazed that he should place such trust in me to tell the story of the investigation. And the book I'm talking about is The Hunt for the Yorkshire R, Wicked Beyond Belief, that very book that's dubbed the definitive account of the investigation. And remember that Dick Holland was George Oldfield's protégé, Well, Dick Holland's mantra was that there were bastards that had to be dealt with, and you had to be the bigger bastard. Interesting, that, because that was very reflective of the culture at the time. And it got me further thinking about the Red Riding Trilogy docuseries that aired in 2009, which was recommended to me by a former senior police officer. And I feel so angry and incensed. And if you want further insight into the policing culture at the time in Yorkshire in particular, around this time of the investigation, it's worth a watch. The docuseries is based on the books, books detailing the murders committed by PS and other murders between 1974 to 1983. Both books and films follow several recurring fictional characters through a bleak and violent world of police corruption and organised crime. Now, I'll also tell you Full disclosure that the books and television versions blend elements of fact, fiction and conspiracy theory into a confection dubbed Yorkshire Noir by some critics. However, the television trailers for all three Red Riding episodes bore the tagline, based on true events. In fact, the name was a nod to the murders and the three areas known as the Ridings in Yorkshire. And remember what Michael Bilton said. He said that Holland and Oldfield were known as Riding Men. You see, as an analyst, something you learn or understand may not assume real relevance until much later on, i.e. even many years later, and no computer is going to join all this nuanced detail and context together. Your brain is the supercomputer, and learning about this case and now being aware of so many miscarriages of justice, of course I'm interested in West Yorkshire Police Service and their clear-up rates at the time, particularly as West Yorkshire Police made the case when they received criticism following the Byford report that they had a lot of other cases happening at the same time. Well, first of all, not really. Between 1975 and 1980, they had 160 murders on their books. But interestingly, only 30 murders were unresolved. In other words, their homicide clear-up rate was pretty high. And in my view, and of course I'll caveat it as I worked in London, But that's roughly 32 murders a year. I mean, I don't see that as ridiculously high in volume, particularly as most of them sadly would have been domestic violence related, and so not the real whodunit type cases. But secondly, and importantly, using these types of tactics, I can now understand why their clear-up rate was high. And I'm really concerned about some of the coerced confessions that I've just stumbled across by reinvestigating this case. I mean, I have to pose the question, how many more are there in West Yorkshire specifically? I believe the case has been made 
for all cases where Dick Holland and George Oldfield were involved to be reviewed. And yes, I know that this was some time ago, but it's still important. And it really makes me angry and professionally embarrassed that they've behaved in this way. And it makes me so very sad and then angry again. Their behaviour meant that innocent people had their lives ruined whilst the real killers were greenlit to harm and kill again. It's utterly unconscionable. And let me circle back to that police officer who contacted me about Leslie Molseed's case in 2006 when I was working at New Scotland Yard. So when the police officer contacted me, he told me that a 53-year-old man had been arrested in connection with the murder of Leslie Molseed that had taken place in 1975. Now, as I said, I didn't know about the case at the time, as it was way before my time at New Scotland Yard, but I started researching it. And as I said, I was shocked by what I discovered. A DNA profile was taken from a man called Ronald Castry, a taxi driver and comic book dealer, after he was abusive and violent to his wife. Yeah, that's called domestic abuse. And the DNA profile matched with forensic evidence found in Leslie's case all these years later. I collect these sorts of offenders, as my research shows that one in 12 offenders who offend in the home also offend outside the home. And so that was the reason why this police officer had flagged the case to me. Well, Castry's first wife said that he was foul with his mouth and violent too. And what I also discovered was that on July the 3rd, 1976, Castry abducted and sexually assaulted a nine-year-old girl. He pled guilty to indecent assault and incitement to commit an act of gross indecency. And he was fined just £25 for each offence. £25. How outrageous is that? And he didn't plead guilty to abduction either. It was a much lesser offence. And then on July the 17th, 1978, Castro was found £50 after he had indecently assaulted a seven-year-old boy. So God only knows what other offences he committed before and after sexually assaulting and murdering Leslie. And of course, the wrong man was in prison. This case really does, again, just exemplify why I say that domestic abusers are dangerous perpetrators. Most are serial, and if they're prepared to hurt, abuse, control, torture and rape the person they're supposed to care about the most, what are they prepared to do to someone they don't care about? So we must make the links that offenders commit other crime inside and outside the home. And I'm also incensed about these pity sentences. A slap on the wrist will not stop a prolific abuser and or sex offender. And like I said, many are both. And locking up the wrong person means you get the clear up, but you allow dangerous offenders to harm others. Now, I'm sure you're curious and want to know what happened to Ronald Castry. Well, Castry's trial began at Bradford Crown Court on October the 22nd, 2007. Now, a scientist called Gemma Escott told the court that the chances of the semen found in Leslie's underwear belonging to anyone other than Ronald Castry was one in a billion. And so it was that Castry was found guilty on November the 12th, 2007, and jailed for life with a recommendation to serve a minimum of 30 years, which is expected to keep him in prison until November 2036 and the age of 83. So that's good that he's behind bars, but I'm genuinely concerned about what other children and women he harmed and or possibly killed in the years before he sexually assaulted and brutally murdered Leslie Molseed. He's a very dangerous man, and he's now finally exactly where he should be.
And so let's just think back to the PMS that I referenced from Detective Superintendent Dick Holland in the last episode, explaining that senior officers were criticised post the Byford report and banished, his words, banished to uniform roles in the force. Well, just think about that. They didn't lose their jobs. They didn't lose their pensions. And no one lost their life. Now, you heard shades of poor me syndrome, PMS as I call it, and so many feel and have felt sympathy for him and George Oldfield and Ronald Gregory. But in reality, their egos were knocked and they were put out to pasture in the police service for the few remaining months they had left before they could retire and collect their full pension. You see, in 1994, the surviving senior officer in charge of the original investigation into the sexual assault and murder of Leslie Molseed, who was now Detective Superintendent Dick Holland, and the retired forensic scientist who had worked on the case, Ronald Outridge, well, they were formally charged with doing acts tending to pervert the course of justice by allegedly suppressing evidence in Stephen Kisco's favour, namely the results of the scientific tests on semen taken from the victim's body and from the accused. Well, on May Day 1995, the case was challenged by defence barristers, arguing that the case was an abusive process and that charges should be stayed as the passage of time had made a fair trial impossible. And so the presiding magistrate agreed, and as the case was never presented before a jury, the law regards the accused as presumed innocent. And so Dick Holland retired in 1988, at a time when he viewed the conviction of both Stephen Kisco and of Judith Ward as being among his finest hours during his 35-year police career. And yes, Dick Holland was demoted, which was four years after Kisco's conviction, and he died in February 2007 at the age of 74. And remember Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hobson, who was promoted to Assistant Chief Constable Jim Hobson, Remember, he was a detective who didn't link Tracy and Marcella's cases, despite knowing what the perpetrator did to them and seeing the photo fits, and that he actually changed the description of Marcella's attacker. Well, he was also the SIO, the senior investigating officer in Deborah Schlesinger's case, and Irene Richardson's, and he didn't link them either. In fact, in Irene's case, Professor G believed a hammer and a sharp knife were used and he told Detective Chief Superintendent Hobson that he believed this offence was linked to the others and committed by the same offender. But Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hobson remained unconvinced. And then remember he took the curious decision going forward that a priority action was now to arrest prostitutes and take them off the street. He said that he didn't really want to arrest them. He just wanted them to be careful. Yeah, right. And remember, he was in charge of Marguerite Wall's murder too, which I gave more details about in episode 26. Well, Jim Hobson didn't believe that it was linked either, despite the similarities to the other offences, and he believed a second serial killer was running around in the same area, attacking and hitting women over the back of the head and sexually victimising them. Yeah, so that's the same Jim Hobson who was promoted into ACC Oldfield's job in West Yorkshire Police. And so despite the initial calls for heads to roll by MPs from all parties after the Byford report was delivered in 1982, amidst a storm of controversy, unfortunately the Byford report was reduced down to clerical errors and so in reality there were no serious repercussions at all. Now just compare and contrast that to the miscarriages of justice where lives were ruined 
And we're talking about being imprisoned for many, many years and being attacked many times in prison. And consider the strain and the stress on each of the people that I've described, Stefan Kisko, Judith Ward, and their families, which was immense. And even when they were finally exonerated, the stigma and judgment from others remained. These were years that they would never get back. And then there's the women who were brutally murdered and their loved ones who never recovered. There's never any closure. And then there's the women who survived, who live with traumatic brain injuries and recurring nightmares. Well, here's Teresa Sykes to tell you more. The teenage mother, Teresa Sykes, slowly recovered from the three hammer blows to her head. Almost 20 years on, she's rebuilt her life and lives quietly in West Yorkshire with her youngest son. I scrubbed the bedroom of the night, put wardrobe behind the door, put dressing table behind the door. I'd sleep with a knife under the pillow, which my mum used to go by me about. But that was the only thing that felt like made me feel that bit safer. It took away my freedom. It took away a lot of my life. The night that you attacked me. And that I never get back. I never ever get it back. And as Teresa said, her life changed forever. And there are parts of her life she would never get back. You see, after such a brutal attack, you can never just go back to the person you were before. And I know many of you are still curious about what sort of person would write letters and send in a tape in order to intentionally hijack and mislead such a serious investigation into women being brutally harmed and murdered. Well, I'm going to share with you my profile and analysis of exactly what sort of person in next week's episode. And so I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell next week for the forgotten victims as I near the end of the series. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. 